My children have a problem when it comes to birthdays and Christmas, as in, what on earth do they get me? Because most of what I want, I've already got. But they do know that there are certain uh, books I quite enjoy reading, certain authors. But then there's about two or three authors who I enjoy their books so much that when a new book comes out, I'll get it pretty quickly. And that might be before Christmas or my birthday comes along. So last month when we went for uh, our grandson Roy's first birthday, uh, my son, son Jonathan said, well, I've got an early Christmas present for you. Uh, you might need to open it now because otherwise you might uh, go and buy it for yourself anyway. And it was uh, this book, Bernard Cornwell's The Flame Bearer, which is the latest book. I can see some people responding already. I think they might have read it. A latest book in his uh, the, the Last Kingdom series, which I think they've started fil- putting on TV now. But all of these books start with this phrase pretty well, I am Uhtred, son of Uhtred, which is what they do on the, uh, uh, on the uh, BBC TV as well. And basically, being sort of Bernard Cornwall books, they're mainly sort of good uh, bash-em-up uh, uh, type uh, battle scenes, you know, how does the hero get out of a seemingly impossible situation, etc., etc. But beyond all that, there are two themes which go through the books. One is, how did England actually come to exist as a country when at the start of the series you have Alfred in Wessex is about the only Saxon kingdom left and the Danes seem to be taking everything before them. And Uhtred, in the story, is a Saxon, uh, is hereditary ruler of uh, a bit of Northumbria, uh, which basically uh, uh, his father ends up dead, he ends up enslaved to a Dane, and unusually he converts from being a Christian to being a pagan. So the other theme behind it all, because this is written by him, if you like, as an old man looking back over his life, is why on earth did these pagan Danes, who could have a lovely time bashing one another up, and have this vision that when they die, as long as you die with a sword in your hand, you'll end up in Valhalla, where you can spend the rest of your time boozing, Uh, having a good fight every so often, and so on. How come this rather wimpish prince of peace and his religion takes over when you could have all that? And you get bits in it. He can see, you know, the church at that time, a lot of, as across a lot of history, a lot of people are involved in it for what they can get out of it for wealth and prestige and power. But also, you find every so often in them, there's somebody, a Christian, who he actually recognises is actually reflecting uh, what a Christian ought to be. He gets indignant when his eldest son converts to Christianity and disowns him. Although, there's a bit of a reconciliation later on, but I better not give too much away if you're going to start at the start of the series. But why did Christianity take over? You know, you had the Saxons came in as pagans. They became Christians. 
The Danes came in, most of them as pagans, and a lot of them, within one generation, become Christians. Now, there's all kinds of reasons and so on, but why, what is it about Christianity which meant that you seem to get these dominant military groups come in and yet they get taken over by a religion of peace? even if people follow it, don't always follow it that well. I think the bit we're coming to today gives a bit of a reasoning behind it, but it's, always, it's a question to ask yourself, why, why should Christianity have taken over? It doesn't follow logic. And usually when things don't seem to follow logic, if we look, there's a reason behind why something happens. Anyway, it might not immediately obviously follow on, but my passage is Matthew chapter 7 and verses 7 to 11. So this is our second in this year's series looking at the Sermon on the Mount and what it tells us about Christian living. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find, knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, excuse me, sorry about this, technical hitch. Is that okay again? Right. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask him? Now you might notice in the first two verses here, there's a bit of emphasis. You know, you've got... If you like, the way things are, you get something repeated effectively, the same thing in three different ways. Ask, and it'll be given. Seek, and you'll find. Knock, and it'll be opened. And then, just in case you haven't quite got the idea, it's repeated again in the next verse. So, in some ways, this is quite a difficult passage to preach on, because you can almost say, right, that's it. Ask. That's what you've got to get on and do. On the other hand, it's quite a fun one, because it means I get to use one of the best words in the English language. Because what this tells us is that prayer is efficacious. All right? Now, I did double-check to make sure I actually understood the meaning of the word efficacious. And it means it has the power to produce the desired effect. So... If ask and it will be given, seek and you will find, knock and it will be opened, why do we find it so difficult? Because I think most of us, when we're honest with ourselves, we find that we do find these verses difficult at times. Not necessarily all the time, but there are times when you find these verses difficult. So why? I think the first one... 
reason why, we need to look at Romans chapter 1. When Paul is writing to the Romans about what they were like before they became Christians. And I'm going to read uh, chapter 1 from verses 18 to 25, just because I think it needs to emphasise the point. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world, in, in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honour him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became foolish, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to dishonouring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. I want to pick a few bits out of this. Verse 20, it says that people have no excuse for knowing that God exists. We've got the apologetics thing coming up on uh, Saturday. And obviously we need to be able to justify and explain what we believe. But again, tying back into everyone a witness. When we speak to people, they have got no excuse for not knowing that God exists. It's not that we have to prove to people that God exists, although we should give justification for that. Deep down, people know God exists, if they are willing to look. It's interesting, a lot of atheists appear to be extremely angry with a God they don't believe in. I think that, in a sense, makes my point. Secondly, he says that man has become futile in his thinking. Third, verse 22. Claiming to be wise, they have become fools. And lastly, verse 25. They say we exchanged the truth about God for a lie because we worshipped, they worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. Now when Paul was writing, he was mainly thinking in terms of people worshipping pagan gods. Now people worship the creature in the sense of worshipping themselves. That not even looking for a it's like an external God to worship rather than the true God. Now, humanism is the dominant philosophy. 
which basically puts mankind first and what man wants first. So therefore, I think the first reason why people don't ask God is an arrogance because we think we can do it ourselves. We now think that we don't need God to supply what we need because mankind is capable of supplying all we need. Now, we could easily say, right, we as Christians don't fall into that trap. Actually, I do frequently. Because we live in the culture around us. And if we don't continually work to be careful, we absorb the culture around us and we think like the people around us think. Now, part of that is normal because that's the way God's created us. But we do need to make sure that the way we think is actually in line with what God says and not what mankind roundabout says. In a sense, one of the strengths of English culture is a belief in the sort of the worth of each individual and each person being independent. You know, that you should work to uh, supply uh, what you need for you and your family. The downside is we can think that is something we can do ourselves and without needing to rely on God for that. So, one of the reasons I don't ask is because often I only ask God when I've got to the end of my own resources. Now, when Jesus, earlier in this series, was teaching us to pray, he was saying, pray, you know, give us today our daily bread. That, in itself, if nothing else, implies we need to be asking God daily for what we need. And if I'm honest, I don't do it daily. I probably do it most days, but not all the time. You know, I've got money coming regularly into the bank, so I can go out and buy stuff. Therefore, do I need God? No, we need to make sure that we actually live our lives in dependence on God as much as we say we do. No, because, okay, we haven't got growth group questions this week because of the family meeting. But if I'd set a question, you know, do we rely on God for everything? We all know the answer and we all say yes. But the question is, do we live our lives as if we depend on God for everything? Do we come saying, give us today our daily bread? Now, one of the things in the uh, Uhtred novels, 
you know, with the amount of fighting which went on across the, uh, well, it was more than just England, across Britain in that period from the late 800s into the 900s, the chance that if you were a farmer, you could continually uh, grow crops in your field and not have everything destroyed. I don't know what would be the average expectancy. You know, it wouldn't happen every year unless you were in a borderland area. But it would, you know, it was a risk. It could happen at any time. We have the great privilege, as Sam's reminded us already, of living in a very stable situation. But do we take that for granted? Or do we give thanks to God day by day for the fact we have that great privilege? I think the second way we sometimes don't respond is we can say something which actually can sound very humble. You know, oh, I won't, I won't bother God with this. He's got the rest of the world to look after and there's lots of people in more need than I've got. Well, there probably are lots of people with more need than you've got. God has got the rest of the world to look after and there's lots of uh, difficult things. Also the Bible teaches that the whole world actually is maintained by God's power. So if you remove God from the situation, you don't have a world working anymore. But again, actually, although that sounds humble, it is actually arrogant again. Because it's saying, I can cope without God. You know, I can get by for at least a few days, or I can get by in this situation without needing uh, my Heavenly Father to come and help me. You find, if I understand it correctly, with think groups like the Catholic Church developed the idea of praying to saints from this kind of concept that probably God's too busy to actually listen to me, so therefore I need to get somebody in the court who can actually speak on my behalf. And obviously, you know, we look at that and we reject that. But do we have our equivalence to that? Do we think, if I pray in a particular way, God is sure to answer my prayer? Do we think, right, I need to do A, B, C first, and if I do those things in that order and get those bits right, God's sure to answer my prayer? Because... If we think that, and it's easy to think that without getting into that way of doing things, without really consciously thinking about it, you just slip into it. Again, it's, it's actually effectively saying, if we say, I've got to do these things before God will answer my prayer, we're actually saying we don't really trust God to reliably answer our prayers. We're saying... We've got to do something almost to twist God's arm 
No, we've got to make sure we do it in the right way to get our prayers answered. But actually, when we come back to the passage, where is our confidence that our prayers will be answered? And obviously, this passage is not the only bit where Jesus talks about prayer, but I'm going to concentrate on this bit. Actually, we can have confidence that our prayers will be answered not because of the strength or the powerfulness of our prayers. So actually, in some ways, praying is not efficacious. Our confidence comes in the one who answers the prayers not in the way we pray ourselves. Our confidence comes because of the faithfulness of God, not because of the strength of our faith. Although, Jesus did say, when you pray, you need to pray in faith. But ultimately, our faith is in the one who does the answering. Our faith is not in the prayers we make. Because he's a father, if we ask for bread, if we ask for a fish, he won't give us a shabby substitute. He won't palm us off for something else. He won't booby trap his answers. So you think you're getting what you've asked for, but actually there's some sort of sting in the tail. But we're told here that, where are we? I like the way uh, Jesus puts it in verse 11. If you then who are evil, right? Remember, our way of looking things is corrupted by evil, even when we do good. So you're saying, even you who are evil know how to good gifts, good gifts to your children. How much more will your Father who's in heaven give good things to those who ask him? So we can trust that when we ask, we will get our prayers answered and we will get good gifts. Here, again, is praying, person Jesus is talking about is praying for like the basics, the necessities of life. It doesn't say here, if you pray for Mercedes-Benz. Yeah, sorry. Uh, I was going to avoid that one. Uh, But uh, you're going to get one. What about a BMW? Fun? What about a BMW? What about a BMW? (laughs) What about it? (laughs) Would that be good for you? It would be nice, possibly. But, you know, I'm quite happy with a Skoda, but uh, I'm not that bothered about what car I've got. Actually, good point though. If you want Mercedes or BMW, why do you want it? Is it to make you feel good about yourself? Is it so you can have a bit of one-upmanship over the people down the road? The problem is, 
Once you start asking things of God, it tends to start asking questions. God starts asking questions of you about what's your motivation. Because it is possible to ask for good things with the wrong motive. When we, it's also the point, when we get, we pray and things don't turn out the way we hoped they would, does that actually challenge our trust that God is good? Because what Jesus is saying here is that our Heavenly Father will answer our prayers in the way that a good father would. Therefore, any answer we get is because God is good. And when we get an answer which we don't particularly like, God's giving us that answer because he is good. That's actually quite a difficult thing to cope with sometimes. But it does come down to where, what is our order of priorities, in a sense. How do we, which bits of what Jesus teach do we give the higher priority to? Do we give the highest priority to acknowledging that God is good? And no matter what the situation is, he is going to give us good answers. Even when we're in difficulties. Even when we're in situations where we can't see that there's any good happening. But God is saying what he's giving us is good. Now Jesus talks to his disciples and says, you know, you might have to give up all kinds of things if you follow me. The rewards he promised weren't actually in this world necessarily. But, where does our confidence come? In fact, when you get the equivalent bit in Luke, he actually goes, uh, Jesus goes a bit beyond what is, you know, the fact ask for bread, ask for fish. If we look in Luke chapter 11 and verse 13, there it finishes like this. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So if we want to ask for something beyond just the bread and fish and the stuff we need for everyday living, what Jesus is telling us to do is ask for the Holy Spirit. And our Heavenly Father will give us more of the Holy Spirit. But, receiving more of the Holy Spirit then tends to challenge us as to what our life is really like. Are we living our lives the way God wants us to? Now on Twitter you quite often get people, uh, I'm not, I don't think it's, I'm pretty sure it's not a biblical verse, but I think it is consistent with biblical teaching, is saying that God's actually more concerned about our character than our comfort. 
you know, when we ask God for things, are we primarily concerned with having a comfortable life? Or are we primarily concerned of becoming more like Jesus and more like a, the per, a person the Holy Spirit can dwell in? Lots of questions there. But the thing we need to remember is that our Heavenly Father loves us as a good Father loves us. That's the important bit. When we ask for daily bread, when we ask for the necessities of life, we can be sure that He will provide them. Could the uh, band come back up? Uh, no. I was going to, you know, sort of time is going on, so I was going to say a little bit about events which have happened in this last week. But I think something to remember is. If we're trusting in our Heavenly Father to supply all our needs, we do not need to be concerned about what's happening politically around the world. Of course, there are things to pray about, there are things to uh, pray that God's kingdom will come in. But ultimately, our trust is in our Heavenly Father who will supply our needs. And as we show our trust in that by the way we react to situations and we talk to people, that will be a witness to them as to the truth of who Jesus is, of the truth of his teaching. Let's pray.